the reason I write is because I want people to think about this country and the way that we structure it in a way that's different from how it's presented to us demographically and to think about economic difference and to think about the people who are really hurt by what amounts to a really bad system for the poor. And so that's that's why I write. And if I didn't have that to say, I don't know if I would keep writing. You're listening to an interview with Karina Wyckoff as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. Curator Matt Briggs spoke with her in the studio. Well, I'm really fascinated with what happens to us when we're kids and how that shapes the rest of our lives. And particularly if we grow up with parents who aren't necessarily prepared to be parents or if we are raising children when we ourselves are not prepared to be parents. I'm interested in in the patterns of that and how you can't really get beyond those patterns, even though you can you can understand them and you can see, oh, okay, I behave this way because of this, but knowing it isn't doesn't translate into being able to change. And I like looking at that dynamic. A lot of what I write about is about how somebody has the potential to understand what's, how they themselves tick to an extent and they have the potential to understand how to transcend their problems and yet we don't. When did you begin begin writing? Um, when I was four. When you were four? Yeah. When did you begin writing creative fiction? Soon after. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So what happened? I mean, were you already in school? You weren't already in school. No, no, no. I had a nightmare that involved my uncles getting kicked out of a Kmart. And I was so enchanted. My uncles were not very much older than I was. My favorite uncle, I think, was 10 at the time. Uh And I had this nightmare about the three of us being in a Kmart and we went out the fire exit or something we weren't supposed to do and all these ping pong balls started falling on our heads. And I was... Where were they from? The ceiling or something. And so I was so enchanted by that idea that I kept writing the dream out because I just wanted to keep it with me. Uh And that's the first thing I ever remember writing. And then... Were you using using block writing at that point? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. What what did you write on? Do you remember? Um, I wrote on the back of this graph paper that my grandma had. Oh, Okay. Now you'll hear Karina reading her work at a live performance at Jack Straw Productions. O Street, Karina Wyckoff's first book and the second book in the Other Voices magazine series, is a collection of linked stories about a working single mother named Beth Dinard. Rather than classically structured stories moving toward a climatic point of change in a person's life, these are anecdotes drawn in vivid and precise language where the same pattern repeats over generations. Wyckoff portrays human beings as beings acted on by forces larger than they are, which have no cause or resolution. One of the book's blurbs talks about redemption. In her stories, I don't think there, are, there is any redemption. The junk of these people's lives cannot be taken into a recycling plant and redeemed. The book describes a closer-to-the-bone reality 
than the one where redemption is possible. These are characters that are hungry and lost, and all they can hope for is to be found and fed. All of this makes the book sound kind of dismal, I think. <laughs> but actually, it's not. It's a, it's a very well-written book, and it has a quite, quite a bit of pleasure. It's a steer. But the pleasure here is the kind of pleasure you might receive walking a great distance in the bad part of town, where you begin to appreciate the beauty of utility poles against the clouds and the joy of mud puddles and broken asphalt. And tonight, though, she's going to read from a, a, her new novel, uh, The Gift of Heresy, which follows four characters growing up in an evangelical Christian cult. And I'm sure that it'll be pleasurable. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Dennis Kucinich is a vegan. It's a side note from the media, which has already relegated Kucinich to the side notes. Still, the news cheers me enough that I mention it to my nine-year-old son, my dinner companion, who replies through a mouthful of chicken, but mom, look what we're eating. I want to tell him that it matters anyway. That hope, shameless as a kite tail, can attach itself to even the meager chance of voting for a president who's better than ourselves. Instead, I say everything will be better if he wins. But I don't mention this promise may not survive the future that seems sure to come. It may not even survive the nights when I dream, increasingly, of Denis Kucinich, because in my dreams his legs are shrunken small as though with rickets. My son smiles, lips glazed with chicken grease. His future will depend on his disenchantment with me and his still unimaginable rebellion. But right now, he is nine years old and he believes the things I say. When I was nine years old, Ronald Reagan made sure to rid the White House roof of the solar panels Jimmy Carter had installed. My mother, upon learning this, told me, well, we're sure to starve to death now. And even though we didn't have a roof of our own, solar paneled or otherwise, and even though we couldn't get much closer to starving than we already were, I did not yet occupy my own future of disenchantment and rebellion, and I believed the things she said. That was a piece I wrote four years ago um, when a bunch of us were asked to write flash fiction on the topic of the future, and um, I've been revisiting it a lot lately for obvious reasons. <laughs> the next piece is, it's a small scene from the book's second chapter, and in it, one of the main characters, whose name is Rachel, has just discovered something about the place to which she was sent by her husband and her pastor. Damascus House stood among Indiana farms and flat brown grasses. Yesterday, off the plain in Indianapolis, Rachel found a buxom, waxy-faced blonde woman waiting for her. Before it occurred to Rachel to pretend to be someone else, the woman had grabbed her elbow. I'm Grace, she said, smiling an audibly sticky lipstick smile. Her name, Rachel decided, was too improbable to be real. Grace wore stirrup pants and spangles. Her neck boasted a great golden crucifix. She smelled of perfume and warm breath, and her car, a thunderous brown Buick, smelled faintly of dog. During the drive from the airport, Grace explained the way things work for the girls at Damascus House, beginning with the schedule. You won't work the kitchen the first week, Grace explained. The first week you work in the laundry washing uniforms with the other new girls. Uniforms, Rachel asked. Of course, all the girls wear uniforms. Everyone feels more comfortable that way. The uniform, it transpired, comprised an oversized set of white bloomers, a white undershirt, and a pale yellow jumpsuit suitable for life in prison. Rachel received the uniform and two white towels upon arriving at Damascus House. In exchange, she yielded her purse to Grace. Don't I get a room key? 
We don't have locked doors at Damascus House, Grace answered as though proud. In addition to unlockable doors, Damascus House offered shared bathrooms with no partitions around showers or toilets. Grace, showing Rachel the bathroom, explained, powdered soap for use on hair and body, powdered toothpaste, toothbrushes all the same color and small enough for children to use, and no mirrors. Vanity is a sin, Grace said. The Lord has shown us a direct correlation between a woman's vanity and her desire to terminate a pregnancy. Rachel had been staring at the tiny identical toothbrushes, wondering whose were whose and whether private toothbrushes were also forbidden here. Upon half hearing Grace's staggering pronouncement, she decided that she hadn't listened properly. A correlation, she repeated. I I'm sorry, what? Vanity. Every word contained the sticky sound of Grace's lips struggling to part despite their lipstick. Abortion stems from vanity. Yesterday, Rachel had arrived too late to meet any of the other Damascus House residents, but this morning in the shared bathroom, as she stood brushing her teeth with an arbitrarily chosen yellow toothbrush at the mirrorless sink, one of the other inmates entered, and Rachel saw that, contrary to her earlier suppositions, Grace was being neither folksy nor hyperbolic when using the word girls. The inmate in the bathroom couldn't have been older than 15. You knew? the girl asked. She had a pimply, plump face and a great shock of burned-looking yellow hair. I'm old, Rachel answered, apparently. Near to tears, she regarded the gob of toothpaste she'd spat into the sink. Yesterday, on the plane from Newark to Indianapolis, she'd eavesdropped on the couple in the seats adjacent to hers. The man had told the woman, I heard that a new Walmart store opens every 38 hours. The woman, shaking her head, had replied, that can't be right. They were not much older than Rachel, but looking at them, she'd imagined that they were the kind of adults she herself would most likely never become. Adults with personalities ordered and blunted by public radio, savings accounts, small investments, and a working knowledge of things like physics and the opera. Mm -hmm. They were the kind of adults who seemed to have been adults for a very long time, whereas her own inaccurate-sounding age of 30 still surprised her. Cripes, the girl inmate said now. Who sent you here? Rachel savored the idea of answering, my husband. But she could not imagine the conversation that would follow. She understood now that she'd been sent to a home for wayward girls and that the coming week's humiliations would happen in the lonely company of children. She offered, Did you know that a new Walmart store opens every 38 hours? The girl shrugged. My mom sent me. Then, without a trace of awkwardness, she undid her uniform and moved toward the showers. Rachel watched the shore movements of the girl's impossibly young body, and her own identity seemed to shrivel into a hard little crabapple that rattled untethered in her chest. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as a part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2007 curator of this program is Matt Briggs. Music performed by John and Elizabeth Falconer and recorded through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Arts Programs Manager is Van Deep. Narrator is Michelle Kazak. And Executive Director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, For Culture, King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. 
All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.